Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. I'm looking over here at the table. Yeah. And there's an empty bottle of squirt. Yes. So what's the deal with the empty body a squ- bottle of squirt? Uh that would be um my good friend Brett was in town over the holidays to visit and Oh uh, yes, Brett. Yes. You know him. Yeah. He was chasing his Evan Williams with squirt. I see. Yeah. I see. It's just kind of hard for me to look at something that has the word squirt on it. It just, you know, that's the a word common word is a very like, it just, it's a common thing that like, there's, it's like, you know, some people don't like the word moist or moist. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's various other ones, but I know a lot of people that cannot drink squirt because it's called <laughs> squirt. It's like, it sounds too much like a, a, a bodily function, I guess, or like, something like that. My yeah. eye was squirting, if you will, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I'm just looking over here and it's just an empty, just a random empty bottle of squirt. Like, like who the hell sells squirt? You know, where, <laughs> where in the world do you get it? I, just, I don't even know. I don't, I do like the idea of grapefruit flavored soda though. It's delicious. Grapefruit flavored squirt? Well, that's what it is, isn't it? Oh, is it? I think so. 
Let's see. We'll see what what is it here. Um, yeah, grapefruit naturally flavored grapefruit soda. Yeah, like with Fresca. other natural flavors. But Fresca's even better. I mean, and it's caffeine free. It's caffeine free squirt, and it's a squirt thirst quencher. <laughs> so let's get off this topic. Um, anyway, before this becomes a less than PG rated show. Yeah, tonight's show is all about soda. Yeah, it's a, welcome yeah. to Conspire Normal. <laughs> it's it's all about soda. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, I guess if you if you haven't noticed, Luke isn't here. I'm sure that he would have enjoyed our discussion about Squirt. He probably knows its origins, and I'm sure he does. He probably knows all the all the like the. Uh, he probably knows all the ingredients that are in Squirt and how yeah. dangerous they are. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I can, I can, I can only, I can only imagine. And there, there's the Evan Williams. Maybe we we need to get Squirt to sponsor us, or Evan Williams. Could we get a, a Squirt sponsor? If we get Evan Williams, we could have a higher chance of getting Luke here. Well, probably so. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, well, he's busy right now. He's busy frying. Yeah. So that's 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 more important than Which this is, podcast. That's a noble cause. It is. People got to fry. You know, he's he's frying barbecue. Guys, we have a and we are excited tonight to have the guests that we're gonna have on tonight. Um we've got Travis Walton coming on and Jennifer Stein is also gonna be on with us. Coming back, huh? And this has been uh, I think a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, technically coming back because we spoke to them at the Paradigm Symposium back in twenty sixteen. Yeah, they did a good, I think, a half hour little sit down with us. Yeah, but I think this will be a little bit more in depth. And I sat down with Jennifer in uh, Philadelphia not too long ago, back in October as well, and did a little remote interview nice. with my handy Zoom. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and for any of you who don't know who Travis Walton is, yeah, if you've ever seen Fire in the Sky, it was based off of uh, his experience, loosely. Yeah. His experience is... Uh, more interesting to me, in fact, because it doesn't involve aliens necessarily. It's uh, or what we people think of typically as an alien. Right, right. Yeah. It was all I don't know, very bizarre, very interesting, but but different. So. Yeah, the actual fire in the sky. The 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 it's it, fire in the sky is interesting from just the account of the of what he he said happened because. The actual part where he's on the quote unquote spacecraft is actually not what happened to Travis. Um, it was really Hollywoodized and made to kind of almost look like the movie Alien or something like that. Right. Cause he saw people in like hazmat suits. Yeah. Or... Yeah. And we, yeah. We'll get to that. But, sure. but it, the the other part of the movie with the, with the other five guys on the logging crew that was pretty much <clears throat> right on to yeah. what it actually happened right and and all that's really fascinating too cuz you know he he and again we'll get into all this but you know he disappears he shows up days later like what a couple towns away yeah i think it wasn't too far away but it might have been but it was yeah it wasn't super close either yeah yeah. And, yeah you know missing a lot of time which out there outside of town is could be could be <laughs> miles anywhere. and miles yeah because remember we were going through new mexico 
Like it's completely different than out here where you're from in Michigan, where there's like, you know, there's a lot of forests up there in Michigan, but you still like towns are pretty still close, pretty together. They're still pretty close together here. But like we drove through, what did we drive through? Clovis. And then after Clovis, we were like miles and miles of nothing. And then just a town and then miles and miles of nothing. And then another little town and then miles, miles of nothing. And then we were in Roswell. Yeah. So it's like very different out West. So like he's in uh, snowflake Arizona, which I think is like the Northeastern corner close to the four corners area, which I think is also has a very interesting history to it as well. Um, but I have something for you. Oh, actually, before I say that, there's a paranormal witness about um, uh, Travis's story that is much more exact to the actual story. Oh, I don't know if I've seen that one. Yeah, it came out, I think, a couple, two or three years ago. But I have something for you because you're all into cryptozoology. Ooh, yeah. Uh, we actually ended up talking about this on Where Did the Road Go the other night. Uh, myself and Soraya and Greg Bishop and uh, Red Pill Junkie. So this actually came from Red Pill Junkie. So bad news for Bigfoot? Question mark. Biologist says Yetis are really just bears. See, I heard something about this. I, I don't want to jump the gun because I don't know what you're about to say, but uh, in the last year or two, there was, uh, I believe it was maybe a hair sample or something yeah. associated with an unknown species of bear. Right, right. This, so, it's news that may be hard to bear. Ha, ah, let's see what they did. But the abominable snowman may be just a big Asian bear. That's a terrible sentence. <laughs> terrible. Charlotte Lindquist. What? There's like a V in the middle. A biologist specializing in bears has analyzed DNA specimens purportedly from yetis found in the Himalayan mountains for a new paper published in the British Science Journal, Proceedings of the, British, of the Royal British Society. The nine samples came from so-called yeti, in quotations, bones, fur, and other animal material. After rigorous testing, they all turned out to be bear parts, except for one yeti tooth, that actually belonged to a dog, according to the Washington Post. All the samples that were supposed to be yetis matched brown and black bears that are living in the region, Lindquist told the paper. In 2014, Lindquist, who researches bear evolution at the University of Buffalo, researched an ancient polar bear who may have inspired the original yeti legends. After the study was released, British film company Icon Films approached Lindquist, who had previously worked with them on an Animal Planet special called Yeti or Not. The company asked if she wanted access to biological samples believed to have come from Yetis. She and her team also collected samples from bears gathered from zoos, national parks, and museums. Lindquist studied mitochondrial DNA from all the samples, a process that determined that what people believed were Yeti specimens actually came from local bears, according to popular science. The study also determined that Himalayan brown bears split off from the rest of the regional bear population several thousand years ago, making them genetically distinct from other brown bears. Lindquist admits that people 
who asked her to test the samples, may have been slightly disappointed. They actually belong to bears, but she emphasizes that there is now new information about the bear family tree. She also doubts her study will nail the coffin door shut on the Yeti legend. I am sure, though, that the legend and the myth will live on, she told the Guardian. You can never for sure prove that there is nothing out there. Meanwhile, some in the cryptozoology community think that the Yetis are bears theory is too simplistic. Lauren Coleman, who runs the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, is taking issue with the study because the samples supplied by Akon Films were already declared to belong to bears in Yeti or not. He added that cryptozoologists have always considered the Yeti could be a species of bear, but says there's evidence suggesting the existence of a smaller creature and even one the size of a human. Coleman claimed that DNA tests on what may be a small-sized Yeti have been inconclusive. He also said proving the Yeti isn't a bear puts researchers like him in a catch-22 situation. Until we discover a Yeti, we'll never have a sample of Yeti DNA, so the only matches that come up will be from samples of bear, he told HuffPost. What's your thoughts on that? You're my cryptozoology guy. Well, I think he makes a good point there at the end. I mean, just because they've got a bunch of DNA samples of local creatures doesn't discount the fact there could be something else. See, I thought I had heard a report, and I just tried to find it, but I couldn't. In the past couple of years, of they actually had DNA that was that belonged to a bear species that was not of a known species. I guess it could be some kind of hybrid. Well, they said they compared they it to bears to to species of bear that are alive now, right? And it, it, and it was similar, so. similar but not exact. Yeah. yeah. So see, that's still pretty exciting. I mean, in, in my opinion, oh, yeah, absolutely, that still falls into you know the, the cryptozoology realm. You've got instead of an unknown primate, you've got an unknown bear. Right. You know, which is, and if that could be the case, if you could have a breeding population of an unknown bear, you could have a breeding population of anything out there. Which bears are pretty big. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I don't know. That's that's exciting either way. Um, it's pretty remote out there. I mean, the Himalayas, I mean, there's... But there are, like you said, there are species of bear there. The locals do know what bears look like, just like, you know, the people in the Pacific Northwest know what bears look like. So there's always that, like... right. People always want to jump to that. Oh, you just you saw a bear because bears can stand up on their hind legs and you know they're big and they're out in the woods and they're furry and whatever. But you know, a lot of the times that people seeing this are people that spend a lot of their time in nature and they know what a bear looks like. So I don't know. Well, is it possible too that the people that always said that well that the yeti is out there, like in their mind, in their concept, they just said, well, you know. They just they were like, well, it's it's a bear, whatever the word for bear is in their language, and the explorers or whoever just assumed that they were talking about some man-like creature. Is that a possibility? Because you know, Lauren Coleman says, which I I had never heard this before, that he uh, that apparently they they had they had kind of thought of an idea that maybe the yeti was a bear all along. I never heard that before. Like some of the cryptozoologists saying that it could be actually have been a bear. Yeah, I'd never heard much of that either. <clears throat> Other than, um, you know, the past few years there's been a lot of you know the, the DNA stuff going around, um, like of the whole whole bear scenario. But I I don't know. I don't know what the um like I'm trying to think who it, is it the Sherpas. Yeah, or is Sherpas. there some or yeah. is it like. 
there's monks too that they they worship these like sacred relics that they all say are from yeah like the parts Buddhist of monks up there yeah and i don't know what they believe as far as you know is it a bear i think that they think it's more man like now that they think it's more mystical less animal yeah they yeah they always have that belief that there's that it's a mystical thing and mm-hmm. that you know it and for them that's a normal part of their environment. it's just people from the west come in with kind of a more scientific approach and say well this must be a real creature but to someone in their culture they could just say well this is this is just a necessarily like this is a spiritual creature right you know some of the and and similar things have been said about have been said about bigfoot as well so i just thought that was an interesting uh an interesting article that you know they they ran this uh this this dna <clears throat> and i wonder what too what uh lauren Colmett's talking about when he talks about a smaller creature whether that's something that might be kind of associated with like the orang pendek um well i think they when they say smaller i think they were referring to it like a human size rather than a greater than human size whereas orang pendek is like tiny like monkey size yeah the um wikipedia book of knowledge says that according to h siger the Yeti was a part of the pre-Buddhist beliefs of several Himalayan people. He was told that the Lepcha people worshipped a glacier being as a god of the hunt. He also reported that followers of the Bowen religion once believed the blood of the mere god or wild man had use in certain mystical ceremonies. The being was depicted as an ape-like creature who carries a large stone as a weapon and makes a whistling swoosh sound. So... I'm just all not fully convinced that that Bigfoot is real. I'm still holding out. <laughs> Been burned too many times with the whole Bigfoot thing in life. I so. want to believe so badly, though. Yeah, we'll get you out there in the woods. Yeah, oh, I'll we'll go get Bigfoot you out hunting. There in the woods, Rob. That sounds like fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. We need to have another Bigfoot theme show. We get somebody else on the. Uh, it's an inter- it's always an interesting topic to talk about. Yeah, it's get it gets harder and harder to find new angles though. It does. You know, we can't talk about the Gimlin Patterson film again. We can't talk about like Right. You know. Yeah. I mean the, come out with some new evidence. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of BS online too. There's a mm-hmm. lot of hopeful <clears throat> people on there that you know, like there was one that I saw where this guy was, he was saying it was a photograph that this teenage girl took that apparently a Bigfoot came into her house and she managed to take a picture with her cell phone. And it took Timothy Renner when I sent that to him to like 30 seconds to go to a website that was, that had um, a picture of a, of a, of a statue in Lauren Coleman's museum. And it was the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Once again, a lot of this is just about YouTube hits, man. Once again, the internet, which should have brought us all together has muddied everything. Yeah, I know. I know that was going to change the world. Wasn't it? (laughs) It's changed it for the worst. (laughs) 
right, guys. Uh, I think we'll leave it there in the intro. And uh, we're very excited to have Travis Walton on. And we will be right back on Conspiracy. <laughs> Okay, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal, and uh, we just had a real struggle uh, (laughs) trying to get two people on at the same time, which apparently is a novelty in the world of Skype. So we're going to do an hour with Travis Walton and then about another 30, 40 minutes with Jennifer Stein. It would have been nice to have them both on at the same time, but uh, I guess I'll thank Bill Gates for that one. So, Travis, welcome. Well, technically, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. We're really excited to have you. You know, we got to sit down with you in um, Minneapolis back in May of 2016, and it was really cool to meet you and meet Jennifer. And I've gotten an uh, opportunity to hang out with her. Uh, because <laughs> little synchronicity that uh, she actually knows my uncle. <laughs> they have some uh, kind of group that they have actually been involved with together. And uh, so we got to sit down with her in uh, in Philadelphia. So I really want to get... World. Yeah, it is a small world. Um, <laughs> I, she had uh, She heard my last name and was going to ask me before I asked her, uh, whether or not she, I was related to my uncle Jim saying, and I said, yeah, that's my uncle. So <laughs> extreme, extremely small, but, uh, you know, I've, I followed your story for a long time, Travis. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the movie fire in the sky, although that movie is not exactly your story. Um, yeah. And I thought the paranormal witness that was done about you was a much better telling of the story. Yeah. But uh, I want to kind of take it from the top. So this all happened in 1975, which yeah. is actually a year before I was born. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> and I'm 41. So, but, uh, you know, before this happened to you, Travis. Had you any interest in the UFO subject? Was there any, did you have any kind of like interest or like any kind of cursory knowledge of it at all? Well, yes, certainly. I, I, you know, I, uh, I wouldn't say I was uh, a fanatic, but, uh, you know, it was uh, a topic that, you know, everybody knows uh, about the subject in, in general, you know? Yeah. Just kind of general, just kind of general knowledge. Yeah, well, well, know what a UFO is. Yeah, yeah. Had were you aware of like the Betty and Barney Hill stuff? Was any of that kind of stuff in like the abduction uh, phenomenon? Was any of that in the news? I had heard of Betty and Barney Hill. 
Mm-hmm. So set the scene here for me for what happened. Um, I know there probably, there may be some people in our audience that are not familiar with your story. Um, and I know this is a story you've told a lot, so. Well, you know, it was a, a, a hard day of, of work, you know, with seven men uh, working in the woods and uh, we'd put in a long day and we, uh, you know, uh, had uh, finished up loaded up our equipment and we're, we're headed, uh, headed out of the area. And you guys were logging, right? Yeah. Cutting trees on a, on a forest service contract. And, uh, this was a pretty remote area. Yeah. It's, it's pretty remote. You know, it's, you know, good, you know, 15 miles from there is town. And, uh, we, uh, we're headed out of there. Uh, we hadn't gone too uh, far when uh, we saw uh, some glimmers of light uh, coming through the trees. Um, nothing, you know, real alarming at first, you know. It was just something that was out of the ordinary, you know. Um, wonder what that is kind of a thing, you know. But... Uh, trying to figure out what this source of this light was, uh, was just kind of, you know, an idle curiosity at first. It wasn't, uh, like I said, alarming or anything at first, just, I wonder what that is. Uh, and, uh, because it was deer hunting season, mm-hmm. um, um, I thought maybe, uh, some hunters were camped up there on the ridge. But the light was coming from higher than where you would estimate ground level to be. So that wasn't adding up. And, uh, you know, the idea that it might be uh, a sunset, um, um, maybe the moon, uh, all these alternatives were, you know, eliminated, uh, you know, seeing the moon in the in the other direction, or you know, realizing that the uh, sun had uh, some time before. So it was just a curiosity at first, but I could see where um, the source of the light uh, was uninterrupted. To the road ahead, you know, I could see the light shining onto the road, and um, said, "Mike, hurry up, get up there where we can see what it is," because everybody was guessing, you know, what it might be. And uh, as soon as we got up to where that light was crossing the road, boom! There it was. It was un- unmistakable. Uh, the um, skeptics, you know, uh, tried to say that, well, the crew just saw the planet Jupiter off in the distance, and hmm. and you know that that's what they were responding to in the polygraph test. But that's not true at all. Uh, this was unmistakable. As soon as we got into the clearing, we could see the craft hovering there. 
and it was it was you know less than a hundred feet away. There was there was no it was not a point of light off in the distance. It was a, a, a clearly visible uh, metallic disc hovering there in the air. And uh, my immediate impulse was that this was just going to be a glimpse that we would see it and it would be gone in a flash. Sure. So uh, I got out and even even as the truck came to a stop, thinking, you know, it'd probably be gone before I took a few steps, you know. But uh, How were the it, other it, guys in the car reacting to it when you got out of the got out of the out of the truck well they were pretty alarmed at what i was doing and uh uh they they definitely didn't think i ought to be doing that they they were yelling at me to get back in the truck to to get away from there and i was kind of assuming that, that that it would be gone before the danger you know became too overt you know Sure, but the closer I got, uh, it, it wasn't leaving. So I, I uh, slowed my approach, and you know, uh, my own apprehension was growing. the The anxiety of the crew was increasing, and they were becoming more and more anxious and saying, uh, uh, saying things to me <laughs> uncomplimentary things was it kind of like a deer in a headlights moment for you yeah it was just it was so spontaneous it wasn't time to really do a lot of deep thinking about this you know yeah, yeah. thought you know uh, i'll i'll get to see it up close before it's gone in a flash and uh closer i got the, the more I became aware of the sound it was making, um, a real strange mixture of tones, a cyclic sound, um, mm. um, a pulsing, throbbing uh, sound mixed. There, there were there were high and low low notes all mixed together it was a very complex sort of sound but uh it was it was uh, the, the the nature of the sound was was like off the range of human hearing on on the high end and the low end so um It kind of, you know, had a little bit of a, you know, an allusion to the sound, you know, that uh, the direction it was coming from seemed, uh, you know, to change when you moved your head. But I, 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 I stopped and at a point where I was looking up at a, like at a 45 degree angle at it and uh, suddenly the sound got louder and it started to move upward and I just instinctively um, um, 
dove for cover. Uh, you know, there was a, there was a pile of logging debris there, and I just uh, got down behind the end of a log that was sticking up there. Hmm. Um, at that point, the crew was, you know, the peak of their uh, uh, anxiety, and they were yelling at me to get away from there. And, uh, I, uh, was pretty much preoccupied with, you know, how am I going to do that? You know, you know, uh, I was torn between staying uh, behind the log, the safe, uh, com- comparative safety of the log and, you know, the idea of just getting the heck away from there and getting back to the truck. But when I stood up to run back to the truck, that's when uh, it hit me. It was just a a blast of energy uh, that it was stunning in in the force. Um, The the crew described it as looking like uh, a bolt of lightning or one one, one of them... uh, one deputy wrote it that the crewman described it as looking like a long blue flame, but whatever it was, it was extremely brilliant, lit up the woods in all directions, brighter than daylight. They said, but me, I, I didn't actually see that. I just felt this numbing uh, shock, a, a stunning force, and a lost consciousness. Yeah, you were out. <laughs> yeah. They said it threw me through the air 15 or 20 feet. Uh, so violent that they said they were yelling at each other, it killed him, it killed him, you know. Uh, that powerful. And so they they did the only sensible thing, you know. They got the heck out of there. Yeah. And uh, they've been criticized for that. You know, my family and various people, you know, when I'd give talks in different places, they would criticize the crew for having fled at that point. But it's it's totally understandable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fight or flight kind of kicks in at that point. You don't they were, know. They, yeah. they were so sure you were with. a goner at that point that. Yeah, it would make no sense to get anyone else killed to save somebody they figure is already dead. And and they didn't Uh, actually drive off that far, though, before they turned around to to come. They they were like, we got to go back and get him. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they did the responsible thing in in every sense. They said they got up their ways. They argued about, you know, the extent of the damage whether I was in one piece or not. But uh, they spotted some uh, deer hunters, and they made an attempt to go catch up with them, thinking, you know, maybe they can get somebody with some uh, weapons to to come back with them. Because already at that point, they were, you know, uh, pretty much uh, convinced they were going to have to go make sure I... It wasn't in need of help, you know? Yeah. 
Had the deer hunters seen anything? Did they did they report seeing anything weird in Not the woods? Not those hunters, but yeah. the sheriff's file did contain reports from uh, outdoorsmen in the area who saw it pass over at that time. Same evening, yeah. Yeah. What did you, like, I mean, what did you remember next? What was your next memory? My next memory was uh, coming to sort of gradually in a lot of pain and um, kind of in and out for a while, uh, not really realizing where I was at first, and then getting the idea that I was on some kind of a raised surface. There was a light above me. The ceiling was close. So, you know, I was thinking that I uh, was, had had somehow been hurt and taken uh, to a, to a hospital. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I could hear the sounds of movement around me. I just thought these were doctors, you know. Uh, I felt a great deal of pain and something, you know, the idea that there was something very wrong with me, you know, something wrong inside. Uh, I felt mortally wounded. Hmm. There was... uh, an object they had resting on my chest, some kind of an instrument. When I could finally focus my eyes beyond that thing on my chest, I could see that these were not doctors, you know. When they're out of focus, it, you know, it, it had the general impression of maybe, you know, a uh, surgical mask and cap. But as my vision sharpened, I could see that it was these creatures. And I just freaked out. What did they look like? Well, uh, they were... Um, hairless, had very large eyes. Um, it's what people call grays. Uh, I don't think they had that term back then. Sure. But um, their eyes had a penetrating sort of an effect to them. I felt. Um, you know, really um, under the <laughs> under the uh, intense gaze, you know. Um, I felt their stare was difficult to bear. So, so you kind of it began to kind of freak out at that moment. <laughs> Yeah, it, it had a an invasive sort of a feeling. Huh. Uh, 
my immediate uh, reaction was to recoil from them, to back away, to you know, to roll away from them and 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 try to put some distance. I backed up and bumped into a, a shelf there. I turned to see what I'd run into, and I could see there were tools or objects uh, on this shelf there. And I just looked real quickly and um, just grabbed at the biggest thing I could find there uh, to defend myself with. And just flailing through the air to uh, keep them from coming any closer. I was making threatening sounds and, and striking motions. Uh, they weren't close enough to strike, but I was making sure they didn't come any closer. Mm. Uh, screaming for them to stay away. And the stare uh, felt extremely invasive. Uh, I think, in retrospect, that what happened at that point right there, this, this standoff was was a, like a um, an attempt on their part to uh, gain telepathic control of me. And it wasn't working. Now, I don't think I have any special resistance to to their mind control or anything. I, I, I really think, in hindsight, that perhaps uh, being hit with that blast of energy uh, scrambled the, the neural circuits in a way that made that uh, where it wasn't working. Sure, and you were kind of just woke up dazed and... Disoriented, that might have... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they didn't come any closer, and um, probably um, that they were, they were just unable to get through. And at that point, if they can't control me with mind control, then um, uh, the tables are kind of turned because I'm so much bigger than they are. And and if they don't have mind control, then um, then they're more at my mercy, you know, uh, just on the basis of physical size. Right. Um. I felt uh, like I like I couldn't control my own body, you know, like I was weakened or uh, impaired, you know, like I was struggling to be quick and I couldn't be quick, that kind of a thing. Uh, but uh, they didn't come any closer, and uh, I was thinking of how I was going to try to fight my way past them because the way out of this room, there was only a door there. And um, um, the 
plan never it was never necessary to go that far they they abruptly turned and went out the door uh before i uh um, could act upon that mm. well uh they went out and went down this passageway little hall uh to the right so uh, you know out of fear that they would be coming back reinforcements i uh went in the other direction so you pretty much like scared them off yeah probably and i was uh just in an irrational uh search for a way out of there uh in the back of my mind thinking that all i have to do is just open a door and and drop to the ground and I'll be back in the woods. Uh, probably wasn't the case at that point. Sure. <laughs> yeah. What was going on in the back of my mind is trying to uh, get out of there any way I could. Did you feel so, like you were just like in a panic at that point? Like yeah, yeah, what the hell's yeah. going on? <laughs> Total blind panic. Yeah. And, um, the passageway curved so tightly that I couldn't see if they were pursuing me and I couldn't see very far ahead of me either. So it was, I was kind of torn between what was, what might be coming up behind and what I might be running into. But, um, I came to a doorway and I saw more doorways on the opposite side of the room there. And, uh, <laughs> I wanted to uh, see if I could open uh, some of those doors and, and use them to escape. Well, that was unsuccessful. I couldn't find a way to open the doors. And um, moving into this room, uh, uh, caused the points of light to become visible. It wasn't visible from the doorway, but uh, but the closer I was to the center of the room, the more I could see these points of light. Uh, whether that was just some close quarter um, uh, navigating um, way of getting bearings or something, uh, I don't know. But... Uh, It was at this point that uh, a human being came in. And, you know, this was, you know, a very reassuring thing to me at that point because, uh, you know, these creatures, it was so frightening to see something so strange. And then to see some uh, a being that looked human was very reassuring. And I immediately assumed it was uh, some kind of a rescue um, from some Earth-based agency. Uh, I don't think that at this point. I I, I really think that um, what uh, that person represented was a species of being, aliens, that uh, um, just happened to look a lot like humans. <laughs> when you said they looked human-like, I mean, was there was there something that was maybe, okay, they looked human, but 
when as you observed them that might have seemed a little bit off to you? Yeah, yeah, something unusual about the eyes. Uh, and you know, I worked with an artist to try to figure out what that might be, but I, I never really could pin it down. Yeah, I think in the Paranormal Witness uh, documentary, they kind of gave them kind of like a really blue, these really bl- bright blue eyes. So it was just something with something about their eyes that was just different. Yeah, something very different about the eyes. Huh. Um, so I went, I went with him. You know, uh, if he's going to take me out of there, I was only too happy to go. And uh, and he said something to you, or just no, was it more of a body language kind of thing? Uh, you know, I was basically babbling, screaming, you know, yeah. all these questions and not getting much in the way of a response. Well, I know I would be. I'd be asking a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, I was extremely <laughs> anxious about where I was and what was becoming of me. Yeah. And um, um so if he's going to take me out of this place, uh, I'll, I'll I'm happy to go with him. Uh and so he was sort of half dragging me along uh, and uh, that you know he seemed to be in a bit of a hurry that way you know and I don't know at this point uh, in hindsight maybe maybe there was some urgency there uh, you know a medical emergency because I really did feel uh, very uh, hurt, very wounded. Right. So he took me out of this craft, uh, parked in this big, uh, hangar like area, whether that was, uh, a larger craft like a mothership or whether that was, uh, a hangar, an actual building somewhere. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't have time to study it out. Uh, uh, I was having to pay close attention to keep from stumbling because he was pulling me along so quickly. And uh, he took me out of this large room down a hallway uh, to a room where there were some other human-looking people. And uh, I. Uh, tried to get these people to uh, answer my questions too thinking that maybe they would be more inclined to answer with since they weren't wearing the helmets on on their heads and uh, uh, I still got no response there and that, that really sort of added uh, a lot to my apprehension you know was this actually a rescue was was were these uh, beings there to save me or or something else. And so I started to resist and uh resistance was futile I guess. They they <laughs> were um stronger than I was and uh definitely in command of the situation. They got me down on the table and uh put a mask over my face. Uh like an oxygen mask, gas mask. Huh. And before I could pull it away, uh, it uh, caused me to lose consciousness. You mean it wasn't a big sheet of skin like in the movie? 
No. <laughs> no, it wasn't a, a, a big membrane like that. But, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I thought that that was probably a good uh, story device because uh, uh, it does a better job of communicating the feeling of suffocation that I was experiencing. Yeah. Which really added a lot to the panic. But if you just, uh, uh, you know, show the actor breathing hard and and looking panicked, you really wouldn't understand the source of the panic uh, like you do if if he's struggling to to breathe through, uh, struggling to you know yell through a, a membrane like that. It sounds like almost like a oxygen deprivation because that can cause people to have those feelings of panic. Not yeah, that that yeah. the whole situation wasn't causing you panic, but and then they put the the mask on your face, and then I guess that calmed you down. So is that yeah. the last thing you remember of the of of being there? Yeah, uh, I lost consciousness, and uh, next thing I know, I'm I'm waking up uh, back on Earth. Yeah, and you were fully clothed, unlike yeah. in the film where. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Hollywood for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like apparently, like I think you had told me that Tracy Torme that wrote the screenplay, that uh, he pretty much just did it as you tell it. Um, and the, I guess that the Hollywood guys changed that to a more to a more horrific kind of where it was just all the little alien creatures. Yeah. So you were gone for how long total? Uh, five days and six hours. So, yeah. Um, you know, I don't have that amount of conscious memories. Apparently, there was quite a bit of time that the memories are either blocked or I was unconscious. Yeah. Do you think that you were um, injured pretty badly during the initial contact and that they had possibly like uh, kind of fixed you up? And, and uh, Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, that's what, you know, the only thing that makes any sense, you know, um, if they had uh, um, not got a hold of me, if the if the crew had taken me uh to a hospital it might have been something unrepairable you know yeah yeah i think that's fascinating that, that like you were kind of wrong place wrong time but then they still kind of took you and revived you and then brought you back and kind of released you you know that's yeah so kind of a perhaps an accident yeah you were you weren't intended to be on the, to be there. <laughs> no, and, and they knew it. So, what did you do when you woke up? I mean, where did you try to contact someone? Like, how did like what happened yeah, after? I I, uh, I recognized the stretch of road where I was and in, in the town down below, and I went down in and found a phone booth and was able to call my family and call for help. So was the town that you saw was it Snowflake or was it no another it was town? Hebert, the town 
nearest where this happened that okay um, recognizable i mean we pass through there uh, on the right. way to work every day right so who did you who did you call to come come get you uh my nearest uh, nearby relative uh uh grant neff uh, answered the phone and he he took it to be another prank call that the family had been getting uh-huh you know people can be so <laughs> vicious in the circumstances like that you know right but uh, he says i'll get your brother and come get you what was going on with the other guys um in the five day period well they were being under they were under a lot of pressure uh, not just from my family, but from law enforcement and the community. You know, the the world at large was basically accusing them of murdering me and making up the craziest cover story that anyone could uh, invent, you know, that somehow there'd been a fight and uh, and I'd been killed and they were just covering up for my disappearance. Yeah. It's like these five guys got together and something happened to you and they're all covering it up. Was it during that time that they actually took the polygraph test during that five-day period? Did they actually take yeah. those? Yeah, they took okay. uh, polygraph tests during that period of time and, and uh, proved that they were telling the truth, that they had not killed me. Yeah. Do you still have contact with them? With those, with with those gentlemen, uh, I try to stay in touch with them, but you know, uh, they all got their own lives and go off on different ways. Because <laughs> a couple of them have passed away too, and right. so I'm definitely not in touch with those. How, how was the um, the reaction of the law enforcement when you showed back up? Well, um, they. Uh, learned of it uh because the the phone call was listened into by the uh, um, phone company and they she reported it to the sheriff hmm. which you know is although it was illegal it was uh, actually a good thing because it uh it uh undercut one of the um, major theories that the uh debunkers came up with that that I was never at that phone booth, but uh, yeah. I certainly was as, it, as uh, uh, the operator uh, was able to tell the, the sheriff where to send his men to check it, check it out. Did they ever go to the site of where this happened, law enforcement? Oh, yeah. There was a massive manhunt. Uh, uh, oh, deputies, search and rescue team. There was over uh, 50 men on horseback, um, on foot, um, combing the area. And uh, they uh, also brought in the tracking dogs from the local prison, and they were unable to find any trail other than where my tracks, you know, got out of the truck and, and went up to the middle of the clearing. So when you came home and there was just all this hubbub, all this activity, 
I mean, what was all your reaction to, to everything that, that was going on around you? I mean, did you just kind of want nothing to do with it or was yeah, it, were you I, willing I, to I ask your questions? Really hard to deal with. You yeah. know, for some reason, you know, they thought I ought to be more concerned with what the media was thinking. And all I was thinking was, you know, dealing with my own thoughts and memories and, you know, the, that was a lot to cope with. Had you had like were the like like as is portrayed in the film and fire in the sky, you know there was a lot of there's a lot of UFO researchers hounding you. I mean, was that true that that there were a lot of people kind of hounding you, wanting to get interviews and yeah, uh, yeah that and that really you know really never even went away. There was a yeah. lot of pressure that, uh, continuously. You know, different groups trying to recruit me. Uh, I was even uh, had an attempt to recruit me into the Heaven's Gate group. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. But I wasn't interested in joining their group. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so you just had to, it just in the, in the middle of all this, it just like the people just descended on, on, on your town there. And I mean, when was the first kind of interview that you gave about this? I don't remember what was first, but it was just, you know, real hard to, to cope with the whole thing. You know, I was, I was mainly, you know, trying to deal with my own shock, my own, uh, you know, ongoing hysteria. Uh, and, uh, you know, the idea that the media or law enforcement, uh, you know, um, uh, that I ought to make their priorities my own, uh, uh, they just didn't understand what I was dealing with. I was I was hanging by a thread, you know. I was just in really bad shape. Yeah. As someone would be that would have a traumatic experience. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it, it, I mean did you feel kind of like the, the guys that are – come back from war, from combat? I mean, was there any kind of like PTSD that you kind of had to deal oh, with? Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's what they said. They said I looked I looked shell-shocked. I yeah. looked, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that, they, they made the comparison to, to wartime. Yeah. And th- do you still deal with that any after all these years? No, it's not. It's not so much anymore. Not so yeah. bad. And you know, the big turning point was I think like about oh, I think it was like about six or eight years ago. Uh, I made a a conscious effort to connect on an emotional level with what I understood intellectually. You know, intellectually I understood uh, as not as. Um, a frightening as as I initially thought, and by by actually connecting and feeling that it, it it made it a lot easier to talk about from then on. Yeah, that uh, that they weren't just experimenting on me. Just it wasn't just something about tormenting me. That uh, that it was really in my best interest. Did you have anything happen to you after, or was it just that one incident? 
Have you had yeah, any kind of I, weird I, I stuff? I have other things that happened. Uh, uh, there was uh, a time, it was February 19th, I think it was the 19th, uh, of uh, 2014. Okay. Uh, Jan Harzen was speaking in front of a MUFON group in Burbank. Okay. And uh, so was Tracy Torme. And so, uh, you know, I attended that, uh, uh, their talks. And afterwards, I was headed home to Arizona. I was driving north up the five to hit the uh, interstate uh, uh, 40, I think, uh, and, uh, or, or was it the 10? Uh, anyway, um, the the interstate that goes back to Arizona. And uh, we saw one of these giant black triangles coming right towards us. It stopped right over the top of us. Really? And turned and did a right angle turn and went out toward the Pacific at that point. Well, I wouldn't have told anybody about that uh, with just two witnesses, uh, uh, my son and my girlfriend. But my other son found uh, a website, uh, a UFO reporting website, and uh, there would, had been about 15 other people see that same thing. Uh, and uh, it was uh, um, set up kind of like Google Maps, you know, where there's circles with numbers on them. Yeah. And there was all these separate... Um, reports of people seeing the same thing independently. And, uh, so, um, I'm interested in, in seeing if there was anybody else that saw this giant black triangle. Uh, it was astonishing that something that big could fly that fast and then stop that abruptly. And, uh, then it turned and, and went off towards the Pacific. Now, you know, it's possible, and people, some people tell me that, you know, some of these are not, um, are not all alien, that some of them are uh, back-engineered, some things that the, the uh, U.S. government is flying around out there. Sure. But, um, uh, Having a resource like that uh, reporting, um, um, I, I would like to get as many people as possible who might have seen the same thing that night and um, um, see just how many people did see it. Because, you know, uh, you take a, a city the size of Los Angeles, it's astonishing that you wouldn't have literally hundreds of people. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, it could be something that is a technology of ours possibly. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of bases out in that area. Um, yeah. I mean, do you think that that was a coincidence? Do you feel that it was maybe related to your experience or? Well, I think it's too big of a coincidence, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, 
that many people, that concentration of mm-hmm. population, and then have it stop directly over the top of me, you know? Yeah. Uh, I felt singled out. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As someone that had an experience uh, a long time ago, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it stops right directly over you. Um, have you ever in your life, Travis, just, uh, you know, I hear a lot about some people, they'll have these UFO experiences and, um, they will also have things that are more like, uh, paranormal experiences like ghosts or poltergeists or stuff like that. Have you ever had anything like that happen to you? Yeah. Yeah. I have some pretty amazing things, you know, and, uh, uh, one uh, incident in particular that you know uh, saved my my son's life you know um it was just inexplicable um Dude, what, what? i went okay. I, I was i was lying in my bed in the middle of the night uh fast asleep and i woke up and went from uh a dead sleep to a dead run instantly and i went down the hall into my son's room and he was hanging by his neck from the edge of the bed there was a bunk bed there and the rail to keep him from falling out of the bed his body had slipped under it and it was the the pole was across his throat to where he couldn't yell and yet somehow I got the message instantly to be there. Huh. There was no no intermediate, no waking up, no gradual. I went from a dead sleep to a dead run. And if I'd have been there even seconds later, he'd have been dead. And uh, I really think I was given uh, vital information there. Yeah, my mother has a similar story where she, like, I think she, somebody had left the oven on in the house. This is when I was a little kid, and she, like, woke up instantly and went and turned it off. Like, she just knew that she had to go in there and do it. It's very similar. Yeah, that's fascinating. Was there any kind of, uh, any other kind of, like, weird incident like well, that you know my other son was in was in the bottom bunk and yeah. he didn't hear a thing uh wow. you know my wife was in the bed with me she never heard a thing nobody he and my son said he he couldn't cry out because the yeah. ball was across his neck uh there was no sound it was just instantly from a dead sleep to a dead run wow that's a great story. I mean, that saved your son's life. Yeah. Because if you hadn't woken up, you know, who knows what would have happened. That's, yeah. Uh, what's, uh, what's life for you now, Travis? Like when, when you're around in Snowflake, how do people, I mean, how have things changed in the way people have reacted to you over the last 40 odd it's years? It's gotten a lot better. And, you know, the reaction is much more positive. You know, uh, you know, people come up and shake my hand or, you know, get a picture with me, uh, you know. Um, you know, local people actually yeah. getting autographs and stuff, you know. It's, 
it uh, used to be, you know, you just see them kind of whispering, muttering off to the side, but but now it's much more positive, you know. Yeah, so we got, I, th- I think a lot of the popular culture has become more accepting of this of this phenomenon. Yeah, and relatives of the law enforcement people, you know, have confided that uh, privately they uh, that were themselves believing. Like the uh, the the main sheriff, I think the one that was portrayed by James Garner in the movie. Um, yeah. Didn't he? Hasn't he basically come out and said? I guess not publicly, but I guess he came out and said that. Um, yeah, his friends and relatives, you know, yeah. uh, stated that he privately uh, believes it and just didn't want to say so publicly. Right. What's your thoughts and, on you know his, in his last interview the in in Jennifer's uh, film? Mm-hmm. You know, he basically states that you know. Mm-hmm. That he felt that the crew was trying to uh, tell what happened. Did you feel kind of you and the crew? I guess the, and those guys. Did you feel? Did y'all feel like vindicated? Yeah, you know, and you know, you, you can't argue with the polygraph test now. Yeah, and uh, some of them have taken more than one test, and you know, at the time that the crew passed the test. Um, the president of the American Polygraph Association was saying the odds were a million to one of there being a mistake when you have that many people passing tests on the same issue. But that was with six tests, and now there's been 16 uh, passed tests in connection with this incident. I've, I've passed five different tests from three different examiners, all of whom were of the highest credentials, uh, you know, uh, Law enforcement in, in, uh, interrogators, people yeah. uh, experienced uh, in that regard. Do you feel like this incident? I mean, did it change you? Oh did- yeah, it just totally derailed my life in ways that I can't begin to describe. There's just no way of knowing, you know, what would my life be like had this never happened. It's certainly yeah. nothing like it would have been. How old were you when it happened? I was 22 at the time. 22, yeah, that's young. Uh, and that the, the it's 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 like were you more kind of like a I mean, how would you describe yourself then as opposed to now, like personality-wise? Well, I guess I was a, a, a wilder, young, sure. impulsive, uh uh youthful indiscretion, you know, the kind of, uh, thing that I, that I did back then. I certainly learned my lesson. You were, you were definitely fearless, Travis, as being the only guy that walked out of the truck. (laughs) Yeah, that was, uh, not good judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, to tell you the truth, I I do wish, uh, that I'd never happened, you know? Really? Uh, that I, that I could have my life back. Yeah. But, you know, of course that's never going to be. Right. But, I mean, do you feel like, you know, over the last 40-odd years, do you feel like, you know, you've you've lived a fairly normal life? 
I've worked at it. You know, I've, I've yeah. really tried to live as normal a life as possible, as normal as they'll let me. And, uh, you know, I've, you know, just tried to piece it back together and, and, you know, to try to make something good come of it. Um, it, it certainly disrupted my life and, you know, caused a lot of difficulties for, you know, the whole crew. But if, you know, if I can make something good come of it in, in the long run, then I guess that's the best I can, I can make of it. Do you feel like you have, you have done that? Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize, you know, it's, it's so silly, you know, when, when you, when people are so determined that we're alone in the universe and, and that anything that deviates from just normal day-to-day life is, uh, you know, um, just Hollywood fiction. It's sad that people have such a small view of the universe. Uh, Obviously, the um, laws of chemistry and uh, the existence of life um, out there you know, just in 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 the last year, um, NASA, you know, upped the ante. You know, they were they used to have this thing called the Drake Equation. You know, but they didn't really know that if uh, all stars even had a planet. Yeah. But in it was just in this last year that NASA said it's a virtual certainty uh, on the basis of direct observation that virtually every star has about a dozen planets. So the incidence of life-supporting planets is far, far greater than anyone ever thought. Yeah, that's true. They've found so many exoplanets now that, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. And you think about it, like in 1975 when this happened to you, we did not know even half that information. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the important thing that, you know, Michio Kaku pointed out, you know, that uh, these they keep thinking of these uh, civilizations as maybe being a few hundred years ahead of us when, uh, based on the age of these star systems, they could easily be, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ahead of us. And so their technological position relative to us is is bound to be way ahead at, at times. Now, of course, um, there's probably an equal number who are behind us, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cave aliens. But uh, <laughs> those aren't the one. Those aren't the ones who are coming here. <laughs> the ones who are going to uh, be uh, spacefaring are going to be the ones who are ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. So that that would be that, that would be true. So, I mean. Looking at what happened to you and the the mixture there, the small like what we would call grays, and then the more human aliens, um, it, you know what? If you had to speculate, what do you think the they? What do you think the nature of them was like? What? How was that mix? This is just a speculation, you know. I'm sure you've well, thought about this. I'm speculating, but yeah. I, I really think that uh, probably these so-called grays, uh, just, uh, at least, at the least couldn't inspire my, uh, confidence, you know, 
that that my fear of them was uh, was at least a big part of the problem of uh, them being able to uh, you know finish the repairs and and get me back on my feet. So I think that uh, perhaps these human-looking ones had a technology or knowledge of human physiology uh, to a, a finer degree, and they were in a better position to uh, finish the repairs. Do you feel like there was maybe like that that these beings could have transformed themselves into some kind of uh, image that might have been more comforting to you, a more human-like image? Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Although I, I don't see anything wrong with um, the idea that there would be beings that did look similar to us. Yeah. Well, I developed quite a quite a theory, you know, about a parallel evolution and how uh, we have so many species here, right here on the Earth, because they live in a similar environment, come to look very much alike, even though they're not genetically related. Yeah, that's true. That is true. And, you know, uh, there's uh, numerous examples of... Are very very similar, but they're, but they're not uh, not related. Yeah. How do you feel about this stuff, like with Tom DeLong and all this? What's your thoughts on that? Have you been following that any of that closely? Uh, I've I've seen a little bit of that, and uh, you know, it does seem that um, uh, those guys uh, are sincere. You know, Tom DeLong and um, Stephen Greer, the, but they might be. Uh, um, be being used uh, uh, for government's purposes. Yeah, but uh, I can't say with any certainty that that's the case. But um, there's it's it seems ironic that they're taking opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, the intent of the aliens. You know, I, I happen to believe that they are benevolent, that they have no bad intention, because I really feel that if they wanted this planet, there'd be nothing we could do about it, you know? Right, yeah, they would (laughs) would just have it. It would be a done deal. Yeah. And so, I really don't think that's their intention. I think that with ever-increasing intelligence and... uh, um, scientific development. There's a there's a parallel moral and ethical uh, development, and you know, uh, you you just have to think that uh, uh, the, the universe can do better than that. You know, how does it feel to have a movie? Well, actually, two movies now made about this. How's that feel to you? I I think it's uh, it's. Um, um, validating you know it's it's uh it really does you know help that um um it's taken seriously and that the word gets out there and that people uh come to understand uh it's uh, something that uh people 
really do need to understand. Yeah. Thank you so much, Travis. This has been this has been awesome talking to you. I I really feel like you know I'd love to sit down with you in person and talk to you about a lot of this stuff because I I think that you I mean you well, you, yeah, you really have it. Day I'll be out that way and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, you got to come to Nashville. It's the it city now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got friends out that way. I'll, I'll... Yeah, I mean, any any time, man. You you would you would be welcome. I, I'd love to show you around. Show you around the city. It's a it's a pretty neat place. Okay. And uh, all right. Well, it's... so we're going to talk to Jennifer. Uh, we're going to get her on since we didn't have you you both on at the same time, but. Uh, uh, Travis, uh, can you tell people where they can find like your like your web presence and like you know the the book Fire in the Sky uh, about your well, incident? My website is uh, TravisWalton.com, and uh, uh, I can be contacted through that. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, people can get a hold of the book or the uh, video uh, through that uh, address too. Excellent, excellent, and the film Travis is available as well. So, yeah. which we'll talk to Jim, to Jennifer about that and her, you know, inspiration for making the film. Um, stay on the line for us. Uh, we're going to go talk to Jennifer Stein, and guys, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> As we are back on Conspiranormal. Uh, just did an excellent interview with Travis Walton. And since Skype would not let us, uh, after it decided to do an update, uh, put two people on this, do th- a three-way calling, which we've done about a billion times, um, which I'd like to really thank Bill Gates tonight for, for helping us out. Uh, thanks a lot, Bill. We have Jennifer Stein on the line. <laughs> Jennifer, nice to be here, Adam. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, it was really cool to sit down with you in in, uh, in Philadelphia. Well, I guess technically the suburbs of Philadelphia. We had a nice little lunch, uh, you, myself, and my uncle. We and, did. Uh, the weird synchronicity of you knowing my uncle still just like is. Yes. It's like it's like in the stars, so to speak. So, yeah. uh, you are the director and the producer of the documentary of the, about the man that we just spoke to Travis Walton. Yes. And I realized that, uh, I have never really asked you how you kind of got into all this, uh, about UFOs and how you got into it. Well, I, uh, I won't be long with my, with my story because stories can be, long and uh, laborious, but I had my own UFO sighting when I was 19, and um, it stayed with me. It didn't uh, didn't leave me. I thought I was, of course, alone at the time, but through a synchronicities of events, 
25 years after the fact, uh, this mysterious journal entry with some confirmations, but uh, finally revealed itself to me when a really good friend of mine who was staying at my house, my parents' house at the same time when I was 19, he had uh, a friend had come to visit. He was asleep on a different floor of the house, and he saw the same thing I saw, which was a very close sighting at about 5.30 in the morning of a large rectangle of white light, which was about 90 feet long and about 5 feet high. And uh, we both were kind of shocked in a daze, felt like we couldn't move. And um, I realized we had some missing time because I was journaling it. He did not. But he had complete recall of the event, and we never talked about it at the time. It took us 25 years to kind of come together (laughs) synchronistically and reveal that to one another. And so I was able to go, you know, um, back in my memory, real life, his memory, and my memory were the same. And that was really a precipice for me. I was about 45 years old, and I said, okay, either I'm going to continue to keep this topic in the gray box of my life. Uh, as many people have, uh, there's, there's, there's things that people wonder about, like, you know, is there a life after death? You know, does consciousness survive the body? Who is God? All these great, you know, questions we sort of try to ponder while we're alive, but we don't really have any clear answers to it. And it's such a kind of ubiquitous type of topic. It's hard to know what's real and what's not real. But when you have an experience, it kind of steps you over that threshold. And I'm a person that likes to have firm ground under me. Your uncle and I are friends because we're members of an organization that tries to create sensible gun laws in Pennsylvania so that um, we can you know, use, uh, use guns as safely and as wisely as possible. And um, we have a lot of gun violence in Philadelphia, and Jim and I, um, both our families have been touched by uh, gun violence. So we felt it was important to, you know, support an issue like that. So being a grounded person, I realized that I needed to step forward and give myself permission to read books, go to conferences, start to learn, start to study. And that was in 2000. And 10 years later, I met Travis Walton, and um, that's when my interest in potentially working on a film about his story really grabbed my interest. Um, so uh, so that's kind of how it, the, the journey began for me. And, and you run a MUFON group out there in I do. In I do. Uh, that was one of those those uh, threshold steps that I took back in 2000. I uh, decided to join a MUFON group, but of course there wasn't one in my community. So uh, Ruben Udiarte, he convinced me that since there wasn't a, an active MUFON group in my area, that it was time I started one. Um, And I I was like, no, I just want to join one. I don't want to have to start one. But as push came to shove, I I ended up starting a MUFON group. And that's been a huge education for me, too, um, because it's gotten me running conferences, bringing in speakers. And um, it's, you know, like a monthly duty and service that I do through my public library. I have a speaker and bring in an author or show a film and I learn right along with the community with me that learns. And um, we we get, like, 
50, 60 people on a regular basis. And of course, when Travis was in, we, which he has been now a couple times, you know, we literally shut traffic down in the little <laughs> town of Wayne and fill up all the adjoining parking lots and everyone sort of comes out and says, what the heck is going on here? Yeah, I've, I've been there. So, it's not a very big parking lot. I, I, I got not. I got to go to uh, your meeting that you had in October. Uh, you actually yes. had Ed Nightingale uh, yes. speaking there, which was cool to see him again as well. And I'm going to have to get him on the show. He's been he's been requested to come on Conspiranormal so by by one by a few different people. So yes. So you uh, you started to make this film. Yes, I I uh, I got inspired when I met Travis. Um, actually, I'll, I'll tell you, it was Peter Robbins who yep. introduced me. Peter had asked me to come out and um, kind of be an assistant. He was running one of the Roswell conferences, which he's done for a number of years in Roswell, New Mexico, mm-hmm. the annual Fourth of July you know, conference that draws 10,000 people. And there's usually a large staff of volunteers that work that conference, and I had never been. And, of course, I knew if I was working as Peter's assistant – I would kind of be in the throes of things, uh, which I was. And at the end of the conference, we went out to dinner with Travis over a bottle of wine and a a nice dinner at Pete's Restaurant. Travis, why don't you have a conference up in in Snowflake? Because your event is significant, is, you know, it's just as important as the Roswell story. It's newer by 20 years. You know, it's, it's more recent. It's less buried in our past. Many of the people who were involved in your story are still living, and they won't be, you know, for long. And it would be a way to possibly bring your town together and create a real economic boom in your town. So that's kind of how the conference started. Peter and I offered to sort of coach and make connections and try to do some fundraising and bring some talented people together to help create uh, the 40th anniversary which happened in 2015, but we were having this dinner in 2010, so it was right around the time of the 35th anniversary. All right, so you started this, you had this conference in Snowflake where you you had met Travis and Roswell, um, and then you suggested having a conference out there in Snowflake where he is to see the site. Yes. Yes, Peter and I suggested that he he have a conference because his story was just as significant as the Roswell story. And you know, over ten thousand people converge on snow on uh, on Roswell, New Mexico, every year on the anniversary of that UFO event. And I thought it would be a good thing for Travis to do it. First of all, it could be a nice little economic boom for his small town, and um, many of the people in his case, you know, from his story. There were seven loggers altogether. There are only five of them living now. But before any more of them passed away or before some of the deputies or the sheriffs passed away, I thought it would be a really good idea. So um, that's kind of how we got started in in making this film. And and the film came about because Travis, uh, in his idea of what he wanted to do at his conference, is he wanted to bring people back up to the forest where the event took place. And he wanted to do it at night on the anniversary of his event that took place on November 5th. And I'm thinking, as an experienced conference organizer, I'm thinking logistics, getting people 
on a 45-minute walk in the pitch-black, thick forest, down, you know, uh, just even up up to this location. It's a 7,000 feet, you know, climb in a car or a truck or an RV. It's not something a school bus could make. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, well, what if it snows? And you've already sold tickets to take all these people out into the forest at night. It just didn't seem like a logical thing to me. It, it seemed dangerous and risky. So I thought, well, let's do a film in the summer where we can easily get there and we'll bring the boys who are still living from the logging crew and we'll walk back through the forest and we'll reminisce and we'll talk about it and we'll we'll shoot everything that you would show them and then we'll edit it together and we'll have a film as a backup in case we can't actually take people to the site. And that's how the whole idea of the film got started. I think if I'd thought about biting off Travis's story as a documentary, I would have been too frightened by it because it's a daunting, um, you know, t- a task to undertake. If you read his book, I think it's something like 400 pages. Wow. And, and at least a third of, of that, um, it, well, yeah, what one third out of the other two thirds deals with Philip Class. So it's a, it's a, and it's like a 20 year process in the book that he writes about, so uh, it was it was a lot to bite off. So the first film we actually tackled was kind of like a you know a Plan B a documentary for his conference in the event we couldn't actually take people to the forest because it snowed or something like that. And then after we finished that little piece, that was called Tracking Sky Fire, and I did that with Bob Terrio, who's a local film person here in Philadelphia and a member of my MUFON group in Mainline MUFON, and he films all of our programs as well, which is really a great service. And he's been a dear friend for, for many years. So Bob and I did the first film, and then we were running the MUFON National Symposium in Philadelphia in 2014, and many of the people we had coming in were quite familiar with Travis's story, Um, and I thought, well, let me sit down some of these other experts and talk to them during the conference about Travis's case, and then I can maybe add that into the film and maybe get a couple of more interviews with some of the police and maybe even the polygraph uh, uh, personnel and find out if I could even do a more elaborate documentary. And that's what I started in 2014. And that really, you know, I really pushed in about a year to edit that together and uh, entered it in the Open Minds uh, Film Festival in January of 2015. And it, it swept all their awards at one, which was I was very happy about because then it helped us to launch nine months later the actual conference that we ran in Heber, Arizona, on the 40th anniversary of Travis's uh, event. Oh, wow. So the version that um, I got last year in Minneapolis, has that been, uh, has that been kind of re-edited? Is there a new version of the film? Yes. You know, filmmakers are always remaking their films. Sure. You know, they're, they're, they're always finding fault with what they've done. And um, as I've been able to, I have improved the film. 
Um, I've shortened it by 10 minutes. I've added new archive footage into the film. I've added some new additional interviews into the film. Um, I have an updated polygraph expert. Uh, from uh, He was the head of the American Polygraph Association in 2012. He right here in Philadelphia named Nate Gordon. And he looked at the whole case and gave his professional evaluation with a 40-year perspective which was good because I think the film you have has Edward Gelb in it, and that was from 1978, where he was doing an evaluation at that point, which had only been like three years since the event. Um, but still quite, you know, quite a significant evaluation, saying that the boys who passed this polygraph test could not have made up the story and all passed. It would be a million to one if they would actually have done that. But even since that time, many more polygraphs were taken over the last 40 years between Travis and the other logging crew, mostly because Philip Glass, while he was alive, continued to attempt to try to debunk the story, which just makes it even that much more interesting. You know, if, if Philip Glass had just left it alone and not tried to attack them, people probably would have forgotten about Travis's story. I mean, it, of course, the fact that Paramount Pictures did a film about it in 1993 right. brought it back into the limelight. But that, of course, brought Philip Class back out of the woodwork as well, uh, literally attacking them. In fact, they're, they're, I just have to tell your listeners, in case they want to Google this, if they Googled Larry King Live and Philip Class and Travis Walton, they'll find... Uh, uh, a lovely piece of film footage. I would have so loved to put in them, but I couldn't actually buy the rights to do this. But it's this great little piece where Larry King is interviewing Travis Walton and Mike Rogers, and he has Philip Class in a back room, <laughs> not like on the main set, but he has him there for comments. And uh, Philip Class literally calls Mike Rogers a liar, but not only a liar, he uses obscenity, which came right out on mainstream television at the time. I don't know if it's bleeped out on, uh, on the YouTube video or not, but someone has posted it to YouTube, and it's, it's out there. You can watch it. But uh, it's, it's really a great example of the type of person Philip Class was. Yeah, you tried to bribe somebody to say that it was a lie, right? It was like ten th the ten thousand dollars thing. Yeah, he did. Adam, not only did he did he try to bribe him, but uh, Philip had the audacity to call one of the local sheriffs. I think his name was Fleck, um, Deputy Fleck, and uh, who actually delivered a Western Union typed bribe. <laughs> like like there's evidence of this. Like you would say, nobody would do this today if they were trying to be, you know, uh malicious in any way. They wouldn't want it to be able to be proved that they attempted to do this. But he had the deputy deliver this bribe as a Western Union telegram to one of the youngest members of the crew. Um so it's it, it's incredible. He, and, and where did Philip come up with that money? You know, it was $10,000 in 1978. It was a nice little chunk uh, of change. Well, that's, a nice little ch that's a lot of money that, back then. It was nice. And, and, and this young man, who was only 17 at the time of the incident, I think he tried to bribe him like two years later, so maybe he was 19. I think he was a young father. He could have used the money. And he was the youngest member of the crew. And Philip thought, well, maybe he's... You know, he's malleable. Maybe I can get him to come out and say it never happened. And then, then, I've, then I've got, you know, some hardcore evidence. Because Philip was looking for anything to debunk this. He didn't have any facts. 
you know, he kept trying to find facts and he couldn't. So he tried to be manipulative, which is exactly the way a debunker operates. What was his theory on what happened to Travis? Well, he came up with the idea that Mike Rogers, who was the crew boss, who was 28 years old and had hired all these guys to work with him to log a certain amount of uh, brush or, you know, our small saplings or dead trees and get them out of the way uh, and cut them and stack them to burn so that in the winter, this could be burned and would not be fuel for, a, say, a summertime fire that would destroy the national forests. And uh, logging crews would make bids all the time to get a certain amount of acreage done, and they'd get paid a certain amount of money. And Philip came up with this idea that Mike Rogers must have been behind on the contract because he was. But so were most contractors. They often tried to bid for things that then, if if they didn't live up to, they didn't get paid to do. It wasn't a crime if you didn't you know, come up with what you bid, but you tried to get the cheapest bid in and you tried to work harder than the next guy to get the forestry service to give you the work. It's just the nature of how this type of work was done in Arizona. But of course, Philip didn't know that. So he came up with this idea that in order to get out of a contract, assuming maybe they would still be paid, which they would not, um, they came up with this cockamamie idea that they saw a UFO and none of the guys wanted to go back to work anymore. And in fact, Philip actually convinced a federal investigator to show up and try to get Mike Rogers to sign some sort of affidavit that this was in fact the case, which wasn't true at all. In fact, Phil, uh, Mike Rogers had, you know, uh, the Forestry Service write letters, uh, you know, of confidence that he, that Mike was not attempting to defraud the Forestry Service or the federal government in any way, and that the idea that Philip had of this was absurd. Yeah. But yet, a federal prosecutor actually showed up and tried to, uh, you know, forcibly get Mike Rogers to sign this document. It, he 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 went to like extremes to um, find any type of flaw or fault with any part of their story. And uh, unfortunately, he really never did, and it kind of stands the test of time. He he even challenged them to additional um, lie detection tests that, um, that he wanted them to take. And of course, the boys were savvy to what he was attempting to do. He was attempting to probably bribe a polygrapher to make them all say that they were lying. (laughs) And then he'd have his own polygraph test that he could put up. But the boys didn't fall for it. The boys said, we'll take a polygraph test, but it has to be a mutually agreed, independent polygraph person that, you know, uh, is mutually picked and it has to be evaluated by a number of polygraph experts. You know, they ha- they wanted to make sure it was an official thing, and Philip wouldn't agree to that. So they ended up never really doing additional polygraphs that that Phil wanted them to do. Yeah, this would have been the second polygraph test that they all took because they took right. it during the time that Travis was gone. Yeah, right. back in seventy five. Right. Yeah, right. and then and then when Travis returned. Uh, a number of months later, after he returned, 
he took a, a number of polygraphs, both he and the crew and his brother and his family. I mean, there and like and, and some of the other people involved in the police department. I mean, it was ridiculous the number of people that underwent polygraphs trying to create confirmation. You know, e- even if you go back and read the local newspaper articles, which the um, the local paper there in Snowflake, I think it's called the Tribune. Uh, I don't think it's called the Snowflake Tribune. I think it's called the Herald uh, Tribune. A guy by the name of uh, Badger. I think it's Matthew Matthew Badger. He was 11 years old at the time, and his dad ran the newspaper, and now he runs the newspaper. So I went and visited him in the process of getting newspaper articles for the film. And he collected all of the articles over 35 years that his paper had written about the Travis Walton story. And when you read those articles, you can see that there was even doubt within the community as to all the events and how they transpired and what took place, uh, just because you know, this was a Mormon town, and this was a difficult story to kind of digest. Um, and the boys themselves were even ridiculed by people in their own community. So when you when you read these stories where it says alleged, you know, UFO and, you know, uh, these boys claimed this happened, you know, there's always like this undercurrent of doubt. And even the police, you know, were, were trying to make sense of it because it just didn't make sense. You know, how does somebody go missing for five days and then come back? Right. You know, it's, just, um, it's actually interesting, too. Another uh, thing we uncovered, actually, I didn't uncover it, but um, Tracy Torme did when he was making the 1993 Paramount film. He interviewed a number of people in the town, and he found out that there was a undercover FBI agent who was camping on an adjacent hill in the same forest area, in the Turkey Springs area. And he and his wife were there doing hunting. And they saw the craft hovering over or right at the treetop level or just below the treetop level from an adjacent hill. So they were maybe only 500, 800 feet away maybe, probably less than 1,000 feet. And they saw it clearly. And they saw the whole... Um, area light up when that flash occurred. They couldn't see the details through the trees of the truck or of Travis, or they couldn't see any details of Travis being picked up by any kind of craft. But the time on their watch and what they saw confirmed everything that the boys reported. And he was willing to come forward uh, when he realized that the boys were being suspected of murder. And at that time in Arizona, those boys all could have hung or gone to the electric chair because capital punishment oh, yeah. was in in full force in Arizona. And even without proof of a body, if, that, if the, a trial was held and these boys were considered guilty, of murder, they could have uh, they could have all been tried for the crime and faced either life imprisonment or they could have gone to the electric chair. So it was a serious issue. It's not something you make light of. Oh yeah, because uh, because the police a, the police thought they they killed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. In fact, 
during the five-day search that ensued, where there was probably close to 100 people each day looking for for Travis, they broke the, the logging crew up, and they put a deputy with each one of the members of the logging crew in their own separate little posse that was doing their own hunt. And at some point during the day, those boys were all like, you know, grabbed by the throat and thrown against a tree and said, look, you know, maybe you didn't kill him and maybe your buddy did. But if you don't come clean and tell us, you're just as as liable as anybody else on this crew. And the sooner you start to talk, the sooner we can all go home and get this over with. Just tell us where the body is. And finally, it was the boys themselves that said, look, obviously you don't believe us, and we don't blame you. It's a difficult thing. But if you don't believe us, just, you know, try us. Give us a lie detection test. So it was actually their idea to undergo uh, a lie detection just to prove their own innocence because they were quite, uh, you know, frustrated at the lack of confidence that people seemed to have in them. You know, and, and it was a diverse group. I mean, one of the boys on the crew had actually had a little bit of a um, uh, record. I think mm-hmm. he had probably stolen a car and gone for a joyride at one point when he was underage. <laughs> and uh, another time there might have been a petty theft of some sort that he was afraid uh, this polygraph that he was going to take was going to, you know, put him away in jail for good for these former crimes, I think. They didn't really explain the polygraph very well to all of them. And in fact, Dwayne Smith freaked out in the middle of it because he just got asked the same question again and again and again, which is what a polygraph does. They just ask you the same question like 10 different ways to see if you react. And then they measure the reaction. And he got so flabbergasted and so frustrated that he ripped off all the equipment and stormed out before his test was done. So actually, one of the tests was inconclusive at the original testing that evening. But it didn't show that he had failed. It only showed that he didn't complete it, which is, you know, in in polygraph terms, scientifically, that's that's significant. (laughs) So uh, for some of your listeners, they might be saying, oh, she's wrong. She doesn't realize Dwayne Smith didn't pass the test. Well, no, he, he didn't complete his test, but then he did, he did do another polygraph later and passed it. So yeah, it was, it was basically what, there were seven guys, right? Yes. Seven, and six, seven guys. six passed and one was inconclusive, which really well, actually, doesn't say much. Well, actually, Travis was missing, Travis was missing, so there was okay. really only six taking six. the test, so okay. five passed, okay. one was inconclusive on that Sunday, the, I think it was November 11th when they took the test. And then, of course, it was that evening, coincidentally, at midnight, that Travis was returned. Yeah, and, uh, the, the Philip Class stuff just really baffles me because you're right. If he had not pursued it in the way that he did, it would have just gone away. Yeah. Because yeah. it was kind By of a him- cause celeb for just a little bit in 1975. It was a big story. And then it just went away for a while and then he just got involved and put it back in the con in everybody's consciousness. Right. Right. Yeah. He definitely kept chasing the, the, these boys and the story and it didn't help that Paramount decided to do a film. Um, you know, he, he did kind of lay low for a little while, but as soon as Paramount produced the film, they were of course getting national, 
uh, attention again. So, you know, Philip just got himself right back in there as the main debunker. And, uh, you know, that's that's why I was directing your listeners to this wonderful Larry King Live uh, interview. Um, it's sometime in 1993, right before the film came out, Larry decided to have both Mike Rogers and Travis on the air. And um, somehow he also decided to have Larry King, you know. There was also in the film that you talk about, uh, there was a... There's there's some physical proof because y'all went went out to the site yeah, and found some interesting things there. Yeah, this was quite interesting. Um, Travis and Mike Rogers had been to the site a number of times, and there was there's always film crews that were showing up to do specials and to interview them. And at one point, around the time of 1993. Um, because of the attention the Paramount film brought to their story, a film crew showed up and asked them to go up to the site. This was in the middle of the winter. And they were having a really hard time finding the site. And there was maybe a couple feet of snow on the ground. But Mike was really thrown off because the trees were so much bigger than they should have been. And he finally, um, that spring, went back and sampled the trees at the location only to determine that some of the trees where he had sampled them seemed to grow at a rapid increase, like a 33% increase in, in tree growth. And then it kind of fizzled out after that. It kind of slowed down again. But for a good 15 years, the trees grew very rapidly. So Travis knew that there was some rapid tree growth in the area where the craft had come down, but he never really kind of was quite sure if if the causation had anything to do with the craft. Now, what happened when I went back and did a survey with Ben Hansen and Travis and a couple of other people were there with us, and, of course, we had a film crew with us there. We were there in 2014. Now, I think in... 1998, there was a huge fire that burned through this whole area of the forest. And around 2000, they went in and they cut the trees at kind of like waist height or knee height. So many of the trees that were right in the vicinity of where Travis's event had occurred were now topped off. And there's new forest growing there now, smaller sapling trees and things like that. And you can see many of these dead trees that were burnt, kind of cut and laid you know, laid on their side. But you can still see the tree rings very clearly from the top. And what we determined in 2014 is not only was there rapid tree growth immediately in this sort of circular circumference in all the trees that had been standing at that time, sort of in a circle, but that the rapid tree growth was unique in each tree. And it was facing exactly where the craft was. So if you walked around with a compass, the rapid tree growth would change on each tree. I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying, but it, like no. if you were looking down, you know, it, the, each tree's rapid tree growth would be pointing towards the epicenter of where that craft was. So there's no way this could have been caused by something like, you know, just increased sunlight or increased water or, um, you know, even fertilizer or something that somebody came through and put in the area. 
um, or even like a magnetic fault line that ran through the area that would run more randomly through a wider area. And if that was creating radiation, then the, the radiation growth would would maybe face or towards that. And so what we what Ben Hansen had the idea to do is see if there was any evidence online of this happening in any other place. Could excess radiation cause rapid tree growth, especially in pine trees? And lo and behold, he found a number of articles written about the Scott pine trees, which are almost identical cousins to the ponderosa pine, but they grow in Russia. So within a five-mile radius around Chernobyl, Mm -hmm. after that major nuclear meltdown, there was rapid tree growth to a 33% ratio of the Scott pine trees, very similar to what we found in the Sitgraves Forest at the Turkey Springs location where Travis's event took place. So we thought that that was pretty significant data. And um, I would love to get a dendrology department, maybe like at the University of Arizona or Flagstaff, to take an interest in this. But when we were rushing to make the film, um, I did try to contact a number of them. In fact, I followed up with them even after we finished the film, hoping I could get a maybe more in-depth interview for a remake of the film. But uh, I haven't really been able to get any dendrology department to take me seriously or to really respond. I've sent them the Chernobyl studies, but they basically kind of feel like it's there's not really enough evidence there to say. And I, I'm I'm sure also, <laughs> you know, this story happened in Arizona and it was debunked in the media. So why would a major university want to touch an issue that could bring them, uh, you know, uh, any discredit? You know. Uh, Certainly, to a department that would be, uh, you know, considered scientific. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think it would take a lot of money and a lot of convincing to uh, really get someone to to want to take it seriously and and do an in depth study. But I bet the evidence is there. But it's it's fading. I mean, these these trees now, many of them have been cut. They're lying. They're rotting. You know. Right. Um, it's been a while. Years. It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it's been probably at least 15 years or 18 years since they've been cut now, and um, they're rotting. So, uh, you know, the, the evidence is disappearing quickly. Well, it's interesting because um, that when you had that part in the in, in your documentary, I, I, I remember hearing somewhere, I think it was another documentary about radiation, about the effects of it. And they actually talked about that, the accelerated tree growth. Yes. And, yes. at it's, Chernobyl. So that's that's actually yes. a, that's actually a, a, a fairly well known fact that, yes. that, that that happened. Yes. So that's interesting that there's yes. that correspondence there. Yeah, there's there's many papers. Any of your listeners can can go out and Googled it and find. Um, even in other cases where there's known radiation or radiation leaks, it causes rapid growth, and it it's partly the way the tree deals with the radiation. It tries to throw off extra wood pulp, you know, at faster rate. Try to I think it's probably like a protective uh, mechanism, um, but it's just the way the tree, you know. Reacts and it would usually happens for about fifteen years after a major radiation exposure. But what we found fascinating is it only happened on one side of these trees in the in the of course the Arizona 
Sid Graves Turkey Springs area because the radiation didn't completely surround the tree as it did in Chernobyl. In in Arizona, it was just this huge blast in this one particular area. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's very interesting. It um, is fast. How has the um, how has it been received? How's the documentary been received? Well, I have been very pleased. Usually, um, uh, I, I uh, you know decided to put it in a number of film festivals, thinking you know, well, they probably you know, unless it's a UFO film festival or a phenomenon film festival or a sci-fi film festival, they probably won't be interested. But much to my surprise, it's won over twenty-two mainstream film festivals, and these are places like Burbank and. And, you know, Orlando Film Festival, Alexandria Film Festival, Sonoma Film Festival. I mean, they, a number of festivals accepted it, gave it laurels, played it. And then even of those festivals, another seven gave it special awards for Best Documentary, Best True Story, you know, Most Fascinating Story. Um, so we're really very, very pleased. And I am in the process of hoping to uh, market the film uh, to a distributor. We might, um, since so much of the film is new now, we, we have a newer version that's not been released to the public. We are, um, we may be renaming the film. We don't know. It's, it's a couple of names being floated. Um, and I'm hoping that it gets out maybe to, uh, you know, through a distributor to uh, uh, international distribution. Because the younger generations need to know about this story, and a lot of people don't read anymore, um, <laughs> and especially yeah. a 400-page book, you know, uh, a third of which deals with a debunker that's now dead, you know. Um, I don't know how much the younger generations really get the significance of this, and in fact, when you look at mainstream UFO stories today, there's many similarities to Travis's story. Um, and Travis's is just, you know, stands the test of time. It's so well documented. There were, you know, seven guys in the truck that all saw the UFO. I mean, Travis remembers seeing it. He remembers walking right up to it, you know, jumping out of the truck and running towards it. So, you know, you have seven credible witnesses. It's, um, and of course, uh, you know, all these lie detections that they, they all took and the tree radiation. I mean, every time you turn around, there's evidence after evidence after evidence. And what I found fascinating is that the police, the, both the sheriffs that I interviewed for the newer version, they had their own UFO stories from years on the force. They had been called out on other UFO stories. They had even witnessed some of their own stories, which were as bizarre or even more bizarre than Travis's case. So it is an area that's rich with UFO stories, not far as the wind blows from the Trinity test sites that went on in the 40s and 50s when we were testing a lot of nuclear weaponry out in the you know, Tanapa test ranges in Nevada. You know, as as the bird flies, it's only, you know, maybe 50 straight miles, you know, across, across the desert there, um, right into New Mexico. So uh, who knows? Um, you know, maybe there was a lot of radiation that, that, that came that way, and maybe some other species was there checking out the effects of radiation on the forest. You know, uh, no, no one knows for sure, but there's many UFO uh, stories reported from that area. And it's Navajo land, a lot of this area as mm, well. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Navajos have years of 
stories. That's, that's pretty close to the Four Corners area, right? Yes, it is. Okay. It's maybe 50 miles as the crow flies on a diagonal from where Snowflake is. Yep. Yep, okay. not, not far at all. In fact, there was a four-state search going on for Travis when he was missing. It wasn't only <laughs> just this area, but, you know, there was an APP out on the wires, you know, for all four states to look for him. Thinking, of course, that he'd taken off in a truck or somebody had his dead body and, you know, under the floorboards of their car or something. Right. You know. uh, you know, when the story broke, it broke as a homicide story, as a missing person story, and a UFO story. And it doesn't get much better than that. You know? <laughs> and, and the confusion, the confusion around the story was just as complicated. Well, Jennifer, we are just about out of time, but uh, tell people where they can find the documentary and they can uh, get in touch with your group out there. And I'd be thrilled to. So if they visit uh, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com, they can learn all about the, you know, the first version of the film that we have available for sale. And I tell people this one's going to become a collector's item because it's got some contentious footage in it that we were allowed to use in this version of the documentary, but we were not allowed to uh, sell to a network. So um, it's some very special footage um, uh, from 1978 that we were able to use. Uh, in the first version, and uh, so that's available for uh, as as a home use DVD, and uh, that's the version we have online. So TravisWaltonTheMovie.com, and uh, Travis continues to speak as well. TravisWalton.com is another place where you can buy the film and see his schedule. And I encourage any of your listeners to try to, you know, get to hear him speak sometime and get to meet him. He's really a very, very special man, and it was a real honor to work with him and make this film. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on. Thank and, you, Adam. And your, it's your, really a pleasure. Your MUFON group is Mainline MUFON. Right? Yep, MainlineMUFON.com. So anyone listening in the Philadelphia area, they're always welcome to come. We, we get people that come from all over, even West Virginia and down from New York and up from Delaware, and we get quite a group. And Tennessee. Um, and, you had somebody from Tennessee. And, and Tennessee, yeah, that's uh, right. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> All right, Jennifer, stay on the line for us. Uh, guys, we're going to close out this section on Conspiracy Normal. Well, we made it. Oh, my God. And right now, we don't have to deal with Skype or Comcast or any I hate technology parties. so much. I wish I could build a rig that would do a podcast that was made out of like two by fours and bolts and like wire and just something <laughs> that I could just like be like, okay, I see what the problem is. You know, it's absolutely, it's, it's absolutely reliable. It's, well, we could buy one of those call machines that like, you know. That's, yeah, that's are like a thousand dollars. I need and, a giant operator's phone and the yeah. Yeah, that's a, like yeah. I, and then it'd be great. Something we, as big as the board that then, we have yeah, in the studio. And then I can take callers and put them on hold and patch them through to be like, all right, <laughs> we got Susie from Oklahoma on the line. <laughs> that would be awesome to do that. That would be. Um, 
So we got to figure out how to do conference calls on Skype. Because apparently... <laughs> I'm uh, the new version of Skype. Yeah. You just got forced, because you have Microsoft 10 on your computer, Yeah, to update Skype. Like, they literally put an update in on Sunday, two days ago. We're yeah, I tried to, I tried to open it, it didn't 5th. work, so we restarted the computer. I tried to open it again and said, installing Skype. I was like, it was already and installed. And you have no choice, <laughs> because we are God and you are yeah. not. not. Not, would you like to update to the newest version? No, I'm doing something important, Skype, but thank you for asking. No, yeah. just hijack my computer. We're only having Travis Walton on the show. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I mean, thanks, Skype. Thank Which you. was awesome, by the way. It was good. Yeah. My was... favorite new phrase ever is cave aliens. Yeah, cave aliens. I'm going to rename my band Cave Aliens. Well, I really, I, I, I really wanted to kind of focus on... A little bit more, just like not just on the incident itself, which I feel like you know he's talked about that a million times. Right. Yeah, he's probably sick story. of it. You know, he's got it all memorized. But it's like the uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about like what happened after. Like, how did that affect you? Like, how you know? Like, and I feel like you know, I feel like we got that out of him. Oh yeah, totally. Know? What else has happened to you since then? And uh, that was really, I think, a really good enlightening interview. And and Jennifer was great, too, talking to her about, and she filled in a little bit more of the details um, from her her perspective as well. So really happy all the way around about it. Technical technical issues notwithstanding, I think that we, (laughs) I think that we got through it and, you know, we just, we got some bugs that we got to work out, but that's the name of the game. That's how it goes. So. Anything else you want to add or say or any thoughts about about this? Or uh, No, I just want to thank everyone and remind you about our Patreon real quick at uh, www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Yeah. Where you can help support the show because it does t- cost us a lot of time and a lot of money and it's really a, a labor of love. And there's uh, several tiers you can sign up for. We've got a lot of bonus episodes on there, uh, other bonus content. Um and if you don't want to subscribe to anything, you can give us a one-time donation through our website at conspiranormal.com. And if you don't want to spend money but you still want to help us out, you can just give us a nice five-star iTunes review or Stitcher or wherever you listen. Thank you, Rob. That was, that was really good. Thank you. We've been practicing that in front of the mirror. <laughs> on, the like, way to, on the way to work, mostly. It's like unique New York. Yeah, unique New York. Do you do like little warm-up exercises? She sells seashells. Yeah. <laughs> All right, next next time, guys, we're going to have on Michael Hughes. He's returning to the show. Um, we're going to talk about like kind of a controversial subject, but just how some of the like how some of there's like a lot of right wing ideas kind of like in the paranormal world right now, and in some of uh, other conspiracy shows that are out there. And I just kind of want to get his thoughts on this. You know, he's one of the guys that's um, doing the whole bind bind Trump which thing that's going on i don't oh, quite understand yeah. that but <laughs> but you know that that is what it is so we'll get an update from him on that and uh then we're going to pretty much end the year out with dr futures nice glorious return to conspire normal so guys thank you for listening and we'll be back next time on conspire normal let's go drink some squirt
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.